11. It's actually more like 976 still. I like to feel like I'm making progress, though, so I put on 977. This is actually part three. So the first two parts have laid a lot of groundwork for where we're at now in part three. So if something seems a little, this is really difficult text. Uh, I feel like I probably say that in every book I teach, but, but this time I really mean it. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. I think next week will be the last week in chapter 2, but I could be wrong. We'll see how today goes. It is, there's so much here, I, I can't get my arms around it. I don't know what I should draw more attention to, what I should pull back from. Um, hopefully, I'll allow some times, time for comment and questions at the end because uh, there's so many ways, so many directions this could go, but let's see how it turns out. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 18, these verses say something about Jews, something about Gentiles, and something about Christ. So in a moment, I'm going to read all these verses, uh, and I'll explain how I'm going to read that. But uh, as I read recognize what is it saying about Gentiles, us? What is it saying about Israel, Jews? And then especially, what is it saying about Christ? He's going to open up when I first start reading. He's talking to Gentiles. He wants us to know something. You know, Larry in Sunday school has been talking the last couple of weeks uh, how when Paul and Barnabas go out on, on their missionary journey, how they're astonished at the word about Christ. And Larry's made mention of the fact that if you've been a Christian very long, sometimes you're less astonished. And that's to our shame. Because the longer we've been a Christian, we ought to be more astonished. I don't, I don't think it should decrease. Really, it ought to increase. Because I recognize, no matter how long I've been a Christian, and I've been a Christian a long time, I should have a greater sense of my need of God's grace than I ever understood when I was 10 years old and I first professed Christ. So my understanding and my appreciation, my astonishment ought to be growing, not waning. So we're going to learn something about Jews, Gentiles, and Christ. We're going to learn something about their relationship to one another historically. Now you could take that and it would be right. The Jews' relationship with Christ historically, the Gentiles' relationship with Christ historically, but really what's in the text, more than that, is the relationship of Jews and Gentiles historically. And it wasn't a good relationship. We're going to learn something about their new relationship in Christ to one another. Their old relationship, which was so poor, is replaced by something so beautiful in Christ. And then we're going to learn something about their new relationship in Christ to God. Not only is their relationship with one another changed, but their relationship with God has changed in Christ because of Christ. Now here's the shocking part. I'm going to read from the message, which really isn't a Bible translation. It's a Bible paraphrase. Now, it's not a good study Bible. It's not like I wouldn't want to go through Ephesians using the, uh, the message because it would be a disaster. Because it's written in, in a lot of colloquialisms, it's written at a very, you know, familiar level. And the point of the message is, it's kind of like, a, again, this idea of familiarity, and you become not astonished by the text. We've read in Ephesians chapter 2 quite a few times, probably mostly in the English Standard Version, and it, and it starts sounding familiar, and it loses its shock value. 
So Eugene Peterson, who is a wonderful individual, I highly admire Eugene Peterson. The things I've read by him are terribly insightful. But what Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the text does is it kind of astonishes you again as to what exactly God did for Gentiles. And it ought to be astonishing. And the way he puts it sounds a little more astonishing than a strict translation. So it reads like this. But don't take any of this for granted. He's talking to Gentiles. Don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the way God works. Hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel. Hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now because of Christ dying that death, Shedding that blood. You who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people, separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders, and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals, and so made us equals. Through him, we both share in the same spirit, and have equal access to the Father. That kind of captures really nicely, like, you didn't see this coming, what God was going to do for Gentiles. And I didn't see it coming either. We weren't looking for it, we weren't expecting it, and God did it. The suddenness of his amazing grace. So, a couple key, key quotes from last Sunday. These are kind of like guardrails that I'm using uh, so that I don't fall into what I perceive as a ditch as we go through this uh, text in Ephesians chapter 2. The two quotes are I shared last week. The first is Arnold Fruchtenbaum's quote from Israelology. Uh, he's a, a Messianic Jew, a wonderful treatise. It's a huge, quite a book. And then the second is a book called Dispensationalism, Israel in the Church. Uh, this expresses a view uh, popularly known as progressive dispensationalism, not the dispensationalism of my fathers uh, or my father, but uh, I think a more eccentrist position. It's an excellent book as well. The two quotes read thusly. First, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. When a Jew becomes a believer... The New Testament never states he abandons his national standing. In fact, the New Testament views the believing Jewish remnant as always being within the nation and not outside of it. So when Arnold Fruchtenbaum, as a Messianic Jew, confesses faith in Christ, he doesn't stop being an Israelite. He's part of the remnant. The remnant, the first fruits, even within Israel, of what God has promised to do for all of Israel. And then from uh, 
dispensationalism, Israel, and the church. It's actually different authors contributed different chapters, so it's not written by any one person, or I would tell you. The, uh, the editors were Craig Blazing and Daryl Bach, who were both professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't really know where they're at now because I'm not sure that they stayed. Their quote is, the Gentiles are brought near to Israel in Christ to share with Israel in its covenants, promise, hope, and God. So Gentiles are brought near to Israel. They're brought near to where Israel already was, which was the point that we uh, at least finished on, I think, on some level last week. Now, an additional quote, this is a bonus one. I wish I could give you several pages of this quote but I can't, and it's going to sound overwhelming, probably, but at least you know it's out there, and at least I'm giving you, I'm planting maybe a few seeds or a few thoughts. This is a, a pretty new book. It's written by Dwayne Garrett. So my son John is at, uh, he started, he's in his second semester of a PhD program down at Southern Seminary. This is his supervising professor. So I can only imagine what that must be like. And John experiences, and he's like he's, like he's very uh, critical of anything, you know, like anything that the students write at that level, he'll, he'll pick it apart. He'll like, you know, th- you know, you need this part, you need to focus in on more. You're, you're biting off more than you can chew. I mean, Dwayne Garrett seems to be quite a brilliant individual. Dwayne Garrett criticizes, uh, he criticizes, the two traditional theologies that I grew up with. So as a Lutheran, well, maybe I'll flip to how he starts off. It starts off like this. Dwayne Garrett writes, In my view, the biblical data on the relationship between Israel and the church is quite clear. So everybody, every church tradition has a certain view of, of Israel and the church. What is the relationship between the two? I grew up as a Lutheran the first ten years of my life. And in the Lutheran church, the relationship between Israel and the church was that essentially there's not much difference that the church has always been the church, even back in Israel. The true believing Israelites were the church, and that carries over to the church as we experience it. So they're kind of one and the same. It's always been that way. Dwayne Garrett says, not so fast. That's also good Presbyterian theology. It was Lutheran theology as well, and I know I'm simplifying it. Dwayne Garrett says, I don't think that's right. Well, after 10 years, my parents started going uh, to Baptist churches. So we went to a Baptist church. And and in the Baptist tradition I was raised in, this wouldn't be true of all Baptists, but in the Baptist tradition, the majority of Baptists, I think it is, the relationship between Israel and the church is keep them separate. They are not the same, they'll never be the same, they're very distinct. Israel's about a kingdom, it's about prophecy, the church is a mystery, it's about a body, and ne'er the twain shall meet. And Dwayne Garrett says, not so fast. I think that's wrong as well. I think if you merge them as one and the same, you've made a mistake. I think if you've kept them entirely separate, you've made a mistake. Uh, that's where I'm at, so I like what Dwayne Garrett has to say, or progressive dispensationalism. He then says this about the relationship. He's got like six or seven points. The biblical story has as its fountainhead the promise to Abraham in whom all the nations will be blessed. 
That starts in Genesis chapter 12. God makes a covenant of promise to Abraham, and it is a driving covenant through all of the Bible. And Dwayne Garrett says, let's start with that. You've got to recognize that the relationship starts with a covenant promise given to Abraham. Secondly, Israel, therefore, is at the center of the plan, even though the goal is blessing for the nations. So Israel's at the center. It's kind of the idea in the New Testament. Sometimes you'll read to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Israel's always at the center, always, have been, always has been, always will be. Thirdly, the oracles, covenants, promises, and glory belong to Israel. The Gentiles were aliens to the covenants, had no hope, and were without God. That's Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we were a couple weeks ago. The new covenant, the new covenant promises given to Israel include good news for Gentiles. Now, we just celebrated this symbol of the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant of my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the, ch when the church gathers to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming we live under a new covenant that was given to Israel. And we're sharers and partakers of the new covenant. So the new covenant is now. It's already and a not yet proposition. It's already here, but it's not yet been brought into its fullness or its culmination. He's got two last points. Paul argues that the conversion of the Gentiles is a crucial element of the new covenant. Indeed, it is proof that the new covenant has begun. And then his last point. Paul had to show how Gentiles can partake of Israel's hope and yet remain Gentiles. We didn't have to become Jews. We didn't become proselytes. We're not worshiping as they did in the Old Testament. And yet we're partakers of the new covenant. How did that happen? His key, Paul's key, was that Gentiles are wild olive branches that have been grafted into Israel. Although grafted in... They have not become natural branches. They do not become Jews. Now this idea of the branches and the grafting in, that's from Romans chapter 11, which would be fascinating and a very interesting parallel passage to where we're at in Ephesians. But if I were to do Romans chapter 11, that would add probably at least two weeks to what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, so I'm not going to do that, at least at this point. So there, there you have some ideas of uh, what Dwayne Garrett says about uh, two views that he thinks have gone a little too far and trying to rein them into a position that honors Israel's place in God's salvific history and plan of redemption. Uh, and so there's a unification and the Gentiles are brought in, but there's also a distinction. And you'd have to read the whole book to get it all. So at any rate... Here's the screen I've showed you last number of weeks. Uh, the, there's a division between Jews and Gentiles. Last week we looked at the Gentiles' biography in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. I'm going to go through it very briefly today, quicker today than I did last week. This is every Gentile's biography. If not, not every Gentile. Every Gentile who is a Christian. Every Gentile who's been saved by faith. If you are a Christian... And I'm assuming everybody here is a Gentile. This is your story. This is my story. 
it looks like this. There's a at-one-time part of the story, a but-now part of the story, and a so-then part of the story. So the story looks like this. Verses 11, 12, 11 and 12, at one time, and I'm going to reduce it to a single sentence taken exactly from verses 11 and 12. My sentence would look this way. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles were separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope and without God. That's your story. That's your biography. If you were to give a class report on what kind of, a, what's your story as a person, as a Christian? Well, at one time, that's who I was. I was with all, all of Gentile humanity. That's my story. Then, but now, in verses 13 to 18, I've reduced it to one sentence using words directly out of the text. We know what we were at one time, but now, in Christ Jesus, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. At one time I was an outsider, but now I'm an insider. Now I'm included. At one time I was excluded, now I'm included because of the blood of Christ. And then thirdly, so then, a purpose statement in verses 19, and 19 through 22. I'm going to give it to you in two parts. It starts off with, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens. You once were, but you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. And what it's talking about there is a horizontal nearness. You once had this hostility and estrangement from all that God was doing for Israel, but now you've been bought by the blood of Christ so that... You are now fellow citizens with Israel and members of the household of God. The horizontal relationship is now close. It's, the gap has been bridged. The, the problem has been solved. But we're not finished yet. This is the part I didn't add last week. Not only do we have that so then, which represents a horizontal nearness, because Israel weren't aliens and strangers. Israelites weren't uh, ignorant of the promises of God. Israelites had the scriptures. They were sent the prophets. That was all their heritage. It's the Gentiles that didn't have it, but now they do. Now they're brought near. But there's not only that so then, there's also you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that's referring to a vertical nearness. Not only has the hostility between Jew and Gentile been ended, but the hostility with God is ended. There was a hostility between Gentile sinners and God, and there's a hostility between Jewish sinners and God. And that's all been resolved in what Christ has done. So here's the summary. Here's what a summary looks like. By the blood of Christ, it's all by the, by the death of Christ, by the crucifixion of Christ, not by the birth of Christ, not by the sinless life of Christ, though all that's part of the redemptive plan, that's all part of the big picture, but it required his death on a cross. It required his shed blood. By the blood of Christ, Gentiles have been brought near to Israel. And by the blood of Christ, Jews and Gentiles have both 
been brought near to God. That's Paul's argument. It's by the blood of Christ, by the death of Christ. We've got a horizontal nearness with Israel. We've got a vertical nearness, a vertical relationship with God. Two questions. What did Jesus do in dying that resulted in peace between Jews and Gentiles? There didn't used to be peace. What was it about his death that brought peace? Second question, what did Jesus do in dying that resulted in peace between sinners and God? That's the bigger question. But the first question is legitimate, and it's in the text as well. It's born out of the text as well. What did Jesus do by dying that brought peace between Jews and Gentiles and peace with God Almighty? That's the question we want to answer. I'm going to put it all into one question because I need room in my screen. But it's the same two questions on two lines rather than the two sides. The answer is in the verbs. Those questions are answered in the verbs that are used in the text. What did he do? How did Jesus accomplish horizontal peace and vertical peace? The verbs are Jesus abolished something. Verb number one. Second verb, Jesus created something. And the third verb, Jesus reconciled something. How did Jesus bring about all this peace? Well, he abolished something. He created something. And he reconciled something. We probably aren't really going to explore the created and reconciliation part really until next week. But we'll introduce it. You'll at least see the flow of it this week. So let's talk about what Jesus abolished. Uh, prior to Jesus' death, there was a wall, of, a wall of hostility existed. A wall of hostility. It's not just a wall. It was a wall of hostility. It was a wall of hatred, a wall of animosity, a wall of ne'er the two shall meet. Uh, and and we, ought, we ought to recognize, because of this wall of hostility and hatred, the significance of Christ dying is dramatic. That you would take two groups of people that had built up centuries of hatred for one another. You can read the Gospels, it's very clear the Jews hated Gentiles, or thought very poorly of the Gentiles. Even Jesus' disciples uh, didn't understand Jesus' uh, treatment of Gentiles on certain occasions. When Jesus wants to pass through Samaria, they're like, I, we, don't, we don't normally pass through Samaria. But Jesus had someone he wanted to meet there in John chapter 4. It's the Samaritan woman at the well. And they went into town to get some provisions, some, uh, some food. They came back and they're surprised to see Jesus. Not oh, It's bad enough he's in Samaria. But he's talking to the Samaritan woman. And that's like blowing their minds because Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. And Samaritans aren't nearly as bad as Gentiles. Uh, there's, I, I read to you from the message. That's not the loosest paraphrase I have. If I, if I were to throw out, like, I'm going to read to you from a paraphrase, the loosest paraphrase you can imagine, probably most of you, if you're familiar with a lot of Bibles, you would guess, oh, it's probably the message because it's pretty loose. It's, it's a pretty free-flowing concept, conceptual paraphrase of the Bible. But that's not the loosest one I have. The loosest one I have is so loose, it would be offensive, and I couldn't read it. It's called the Cotton Patch Bible. 
And the Cotton Patch Bible takes the text of Scripture, paraphrases it as if you're living in the Deep South. And there's an animosity between uh, North and South. There's an animosity between white and black. And it kind of uh, becomes very vivid, vivid in the text. That's the kind of animosity we're talking about. A hatred and a disrespect for one another. And Christ, by his death, does something with that wall of hostility to eliminate it so that Jews and Gentiles now have a nearness with one another. Luke chapter 23, you don't need to turn there because I'm going to wind up running out of time. But the same word is used. Uh, it's, a, it's a noun, this hostility. The same word is used. As a noun, it's only found like six times in the New Testament. One of those occasions, though, is in Luke chapter 23. It's Jesus' uh, sufferings. He's uh, been accosted by the Jewish priests and the authorities. He's been handed over to Pilate. Pilate takes him to King Herod, who happens to be in town. King Herod examines Jesus. And, and King Herod... Well, I should read it to you because I'm going to get it wrong if I don't. The text reads... Uh, Luke chapter 23. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Jesus... And Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, Herod sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they'd been at enmity at one another. Until that day, when they crucified Jesus, Herod and Pilate were the worst of enemies. They didn't get along. They didn't see eye to eye. They were at enmity with one another. But they were united in their treatment of Jesus. In the injustice that they uh, participated in that resulted in Jesus' death on a cross. By the way, there's a kind of a principle out of that you could see in our secular culture. That there's, in secular culture, there's lots of competing factions out there. And how do you look at the environment? How do you look at economics? How do you look at government? Lots of competing factors. But all those factions out there that oftentimes disagree with one another pretty sharply, they often are very much united in biblical Christianity is not the answer. They may disagree with one another, but the, uh, the punching bag is biblical Christianity. We're... They're united in, we are not going to accept that there is a creator God like I read about in a Christian's Bible. They're united in that. Herod and Pilate became friends that day. Acts chapter 21, this probably is worth turning to. So if you're using a pew Bible, turn to page 930. If you're not using a pew Bible, uh, you have to find it on your own. Acts chapter 21, right after the Gospels, is the book of Acts. You'll get some idea of this hostility in Acts chapter 21. This is the Apostle Paul going back to Jerusalem for the last time that is recorded in Scripture. Acts chapter 21 and verse 27. It's actually a fascinating text. I wish I could read the entire chapter, but I won't. It starts this way. When the seven days were almost completed... The Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law in this place. 
Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And a mob immediately ensues, and they are ready to kill Paul, except the Romans intervene. But the idea is he's done all these horrible things, and almost worst of all is he's had the audacity to bring Gentiles, Greeks, into our temple. And by that, they don't mean into the temple proper, just a courtyard where Gentiles don't belong. Gentiles did have a courtyard that was furthest away from the temple, and they could be there, but no further. In fact, archaeologists have found several uh, stones from ancient Israel, and the stone reads, at least one of them, I think they both read to the same effect. The stone is inscribed outside where the Gentile, or here's where the Gentile courtyard is, no man of another nation is to enter within this fence and enclosure around this temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. The Jews had warnings. Like, if you, if you dare to go past the Gentile courtyard, you will only have yourself to blame when you are dot, when you're stoned or killed or however, however it happens. You're not allowed any further. And Paul was accused of taking Gentiles further than the courtyard that belonged to Gentiles. And a mob ensues and they're ready to kill Paul. That's the animosity that's been building up over centuries of time. And that's what Jesus deals with in his death. So, where did the wall come from? Where did this wall come from? Why is there this wall? And the answer is God prescribed the wall. God conveyed the wall or required the wall. The, the, it's all that God did intending to keep Jews separate from Gentiles. God didn't want them mingling together. In fact, this may be a shock to you unless you've read the Gospels, but there's when Jesus first commissions his disciples in I think it's Matthew chapter 10. I didn't recheck it, but I think it's chapter 10. Jesus sends out his disciples. Jesus says, oh, and by the way, when you go out preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, don't go to the Samaritans and don't go to the Gentiles. Which sounds like Jesus isn't nearly as loving as what we thought he was. But there's a time and a place for that. It's not in Matthew chapter 10. So God intended to keep the groups separate. The Jews were going to be separate from all the other Gentile nations in the whole world. God prescribed it. It's all part of God's system. That's where the wall came from. God prescribed it. Second question, what is the wall? Well, the wall is very physical. It really was a wall there, just like there was a, a wall separating the court of women from the court of men. There was the court of Gentiles way out there. They were like the nosebleed seats. Then there was the court of women, upper deck, a little bit more behind home plate. Then there's the court of men. Yeah, you're getting, now you're getting a pretty good view. And then there's the, the court of priests, where the priests could go. And then the high priest actually went into the most holy place one day a year for just a portion of time. That was the system that God prescribed. It's God's prescribed system. But the physical wall, that's, that's, only, a, that's only a small portion of what God did to keep the group separate. 
Because if you think it's just about a physical wall, you're missing the larger picture. It's the entire system prescribed by God, given to Moses on Mount Sinai, that he comes down and delivers to Israel. What is the wall? The law, the wall is the Mosaic Law Covenant. It's what Moses brought down, and he saw the people committing idolatry, and he broke those tablets of stone, and he went back up and got a new set. What is it? It's the Mosaic Law. It's the Ten Commandments, but it's all the law. It's 613 commandments. Is how the Jews divided up all that was delivered from God to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's described this way in Ephesians chapter 2, the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances. That's, it's because of that law delivered to Moses why the Jews and Gentiles would never get along. Never get along. For one thing, it gave priority to the Jews what they could do and what the Gentiles couldn't do. Even if you're a proselyte Gentile, you can only get so far in. You'll never serve as a priest. You know, you'll never serve even as a Levite in any of those priestly functions at all. I mean, you'll just never be. You're a Gentile. Uh, the way uh, Jews had to live their lives, the way they observed the Sabbath day, the way they uh, participated in agriculture. Every seven years, they had to lay aside their land. Every 50 years, there's a year of jubilee. On and on and on the laws go. On and on. And so there was this terrific animosity, this terrific wall, this terrific barrier of the whole system between the way the Jews lived and the way all the other nations of the earth lived. So what is the wall? It's the Mosaic Law Covenant. Why did God place a wall between Jews and Gentiles? Why would God do that? I've got two answers. You probably, I could probably go out, come up with some more, but the two I think that are kind of most important, especially the second one, it would look like this. Number one, God is highlighting his grace to Israel. God is treating Israel differently than he's treating all the other nations because he's really not doing anything with all the other nations. He makes it very clear to Moses, out of all the nations of the earth, I've chosen you to be my chosen people. You're going to be my treasured possession, my special people. I'm going to do things for you that I don't do for any of the other nations. Which is what we're reading about in Ephesians. You were aliens. You were strangers. You were without God. You were without hope. You were without the covenant. You were without Messiah. You didn't have any of those advantages. Israel did. Always did. Ever since God called him and made him his own people. So he's highlighting what God can do for the people that he loves. It's highlighting his grace. A second reason, which is I think, I would call it probably the most important reason. Why does he place a wall? It's to keep his covenants of promise. It's to keep his covenants of promise. God told Abraham, gave him a covenant of promise. I'm going to give you a seed, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that seed isn't going to be Ishmael. And that seed isn't going to be any other than the child Isaac who was born when Abraham was 100 years old. And then God gives that same, you've got covenants, plural, because that same promise is given to Isaac. And then Isaac's son Jacob, the same promise is given to Jacob. It's in your seed, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then Jacob, it gets narrowed down to one of the 12 sons, Judah. Which is kind of unforeseen because Joseph seems like the, the special boy. And in some ways he really is. But in another sense, the promised seed ultimately is going to come through the line of Judah. 
not through Joseph, and not through Benjamin. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. God's going to fulfill all his wonderful promises for Israel and for all the nations of the earth. And so he's going to keep that line pure within Israel. Uh, that's why you read about in the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, two of the Gospels open up with long gene genealogies, right? Jesus, you know, here's his genealogy, and it goes through a long genealogy because it's saying God's keeping his promise. It goes all the way back to Abraham. All right, God promised this, and this is how it was fulfilled. The race of Israel didn't get intermingled and lost among all the nations of the earth. They stayed separate. That was the purpose of the law. And then all those records were lost when Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But we don't need them anymore because we already have the Messiah. We don't have to still look for the Messiah who can trace his record back to King David, which is, by the way, another covenant of promise. Because God told David, I'm going to give you a child, a son, who is going to reign as king forever. It's not Solomon. It's Jesus. So God keeps his people separate because he intends to bring forth from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, King David, later on, through that line, he's going to bring forth the one who's the savior of the world, the one to fulfill all the prophecies. So what happened to the wall when Jesus was crucified? And what happened to the wall was Christ, quote, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, thereby killing hostility. Christ abolished Mosaic law. That word abolished is a word that has a, a semantic range of meaning. It means to make idle, to make useless, to render inactive, and it can mean to destroy. It has that whole semantic range. The context kind of determines what it means. It's the same word that's used several times in the, in the New Testament where it says the last enemy, enemy to be destroyed. Do you know what the last enemy to be destroyed is? It's death. Christ is going to destroy all the way down to the last enemy. Our last enemy is death. And, and by destroy is a really good word to use there. Here the word is uh, it's, it's translated in the English standard as abolish, but to make idle, useless, render inactive, all those things are true. The law served its purpose, and now it's done with. So I've got to, I'm out of time. I'm going to, Romans 7 talks, the same word is used about how, uh, maybe I'll read at least a verse for you. In Romans chapter 7 it says, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. The written code is Mosaic law. It's what Moses wrote down on those tablets of stone. We don't serve under the old way of written law. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. And, and it said we are released. That word released is the same. Uh, it's been rendered inactive. It no longer has any claim on us. The same word is used multiple times in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Moses' law was given with a, a certain amount of glory, but it was a fading glory. Where's the new covenant? And what we have by the Spirit is a, is a glory that far surpasses anything Moses experienced. Because Moses' law was temporary. It was an add-on for a time. It was never meant to be permanent. 
The new covenant supersedes it and takes its place. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. I'll read just a couple of highlights from that passage as well. In fact, if you want to know uh, how it is that Christ, by his death, accomplished so much horizontal nearness and vertical nearness, read the book of Hebrews. That's why it's there. How is all this nearness accomplished? The book of Hebrews tells you. You've got, whatever, 13 chapters maybe of how did the nearness... Better Messiah, better sacrifice, better covenant, better promises, better everything. Better than Moses. Hebrews chapter 8 talks about the same thing. It ends... Chapter 8 ends with this statement. In speaking of a new covenant, he, Messiah, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And then the last passage is the one that people are like, well, what about Matthew 5.17? Because Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. So what about that? And the answer is, Jesus didn't fulfill the law just by his birth. He didn't fulfill the law just by his perfect life of obedience. Jesus fulfilled the law by his death. And once he met all the requirements of righteousness, dying in a sinner's place, the law is completely fulfilled. It no longer has claim. It's kind of like, uh, I always liken it to, uh, you know, John is, in, you know, he's academic he gets that from Cindy, not from me. Not that anybody really, like, oh, yeah, like, you didn't have to tell us that. Like, I get that. Like, being a student was never really my thing. Uh, Cindy and John excel at being students. They could do that a long time, longer than Ryan and I. Ryan and I are more kindred spirits. Like, you just, that's a different story. Anyway, <laughs> when you take a class, they give you a syllabus, which has certain requirements, and you've got to meet those requirements. Once you've met them... That professor no longer has any claim over you. Once you've fulfilled all the requirements of the class, it's over. It's done with. There are all, the law of Moses had all these requirements that had to be fulfilled. They couldn't be fulfilled by us. They were fulfilled by Christ. And part of the fulfillment is a, the soul that sins must surely die. Jesus died, not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. Meeting, fulfilling the requirements of penalty of death for disobedience. Having fulfilled those requirements, Moses' law is fulfilled. It's set aside. It's done with. I wish I could go on about this. Uh, Moses' law is, is a whole unit uh, in Luther, my Lutheran theology and Presbyterian theology, even in some Baptist theology, it's divided up into moral law, ceremonial law, sacrificial law. You've got to divide it up, civil law. You've got to divide it up in a different law. I don't think the Bible ever treats it that way. Moses' law is an all-or-nothing proposition. Paul argues in Galatians chapter 3, if you put yourself under the law, it's the whole thing. It's all the law. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says not one jot or tittle will pass until it's all fulfilled. And he says, even down to the least of these commandments. So if I'm under the law, I'm under the law even down to the very least of the commandments. It's either fulfilled in Christ and it has no claim on me, 
or I'm under 613 written laws given to Moses on Mount Sinai. With the barrier of the law removed, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles is unwarranted without any basis. There's no longer any distinction. God no longer has to keep the people separate to bring forth the Messiah who already came and already fulfilled the law. Now, there's a unity in Christ. All you have to do is believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I can only hope that every person here has felt a keen awareness of their sin and guilt and have cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner in Christ. That Christ would be my sin bearer that takes away my sin. That I would have the peace and the joy of oneness with God Almighty and oneness with every other sinner in Christ. So Jesus abolished something. He also created, and I'm out of time, so I'm going to stop right there. We'll do the created something and the reconciled something next week. What are your comments and questions from this week, Terry? Terry? Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. Cindy. Are you talking about the verb release? Uh, that was in Romans chapter 7, where it talks about uh, we are released from the law. That's the same word that is used, uh, uh, translated, abolished in Ephesians chapter 2. So it's the same definition. Uh, the same semantic range of meaning, which if I'd have to go back to what the range of meaning was to make idle, useless, render inactive, destroy. That's the semantic range of meaning. So we are, uh, the law no longer has that, rela- that, that imposing relationship on the claim of Jew or Gentile in Christ. Someone else. Theron. Yeah, and on one hand, that's exactly right. It, it appeared to be, and it was, seemed to be communicated to be, that the magnificence of God's grace to Israel, Israel then would be a light to all the nations of the earth. Well, it was their sin and disobedience. But then in Romans, what you find out is, guess what? Your sin and disobedience results in the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And it's through, the, it's through Israel's disobedience that the gospel goes out to Gentiles and they believe. And then Romans says, says oh, I mean, can you, if this is true, if it's Israel's failure that results in our salvation, and that's true, then Paul says in Romans, can you imagine what it's going to be when Israel comes into their own? If their disobedience brings us salvation, what does it mean when God completes all of the promises he's given to Israel, his people? What does that mean for Gentiles? And Paul's like, I can't even imagine. And that's in Romans chapter probably 11. Somebody else? Joe. So, I think you've said a couple times that this is a difficult passage. Yeah. Yes. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly that's that's why it's difficult. I was raised, you know, my Lutheran upbringing where Israel and the church were very much intertwined. 
I was only 10 years old when we left, so it's not like, although this is a fun story, and I shouldn't tell it because I'm out of time. But the fun story is I went to Lutheran school, you know, like I graduated from eighth grade. That's as high as they got back then. And, uh, you know, I was raised Lutheran for those years, but we were just transitioning out of the Lutheran church, and, and my first youth director was a guy named Gary French, which a few of you know. He was paralyzed from the waist down from polio. He walked with crutches. He was, but he was my first youth director at Temple Baptist Church. And I, I was reared in Lutheran theology. I, I knew the catechism because you're learning catechism in Lutheran church. And, and Gary French taught me how, how actually when God created the world, he spoke all the worlds into existence and everything that was made was made by the Son. I'm like, say What? In the Lutheran church, God the Father created everything. And he showed me, no, it's in John chapter 1, it's in Colossians, it's in Hebrews. Everything that is made was spoken into existence by the Son. I thought, this is news. I wrote that down in a paper for my catechism class. And the, and the minister was not impressed. He's like, well, traditionally what we believe is, you know, it's God. And I'm like, well, tradition, you know, to heck with that. The Bible says... <laughs> The sun spoke the world into existence. That was my first Eureka experience. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think Ephesians chapter 2 is, it's, in, it's impossible to take the text for what it is and remain a very traditional dispensationalist like I was, at least for me, for my purposes, or a very covenantal position like my Presbyterian friends. I think, I think the text poses problems for both camps. Somebody else? Dave. I'm going to go with still Jewish. And there were 10 tribes, right? So 10 tribes went, there were the 10 northern tribes of Israel. I mean, you only get a few uh, uh, glimpses of those tribes in the New Testament on any level. But one would be uh, when Jesus was born and Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple and there is a prophetess there, or maybe it was the, the prophet. One of them was from the tribe of Asher. So that's like hundreds of years after the ten tribes had, had been dispersed and overcome by the Assyrians. Yet here's somebody in, in one of the opening gospels from the tribe of Asher. So a lot of Jews have intermingled and their bloodline is completely lost. I think that's true. But it's really unique, even in our culture and in our world, there are very explicit, specific Jewish communities, in spite of the fact that Israel was not a nation for roughly 2,000 years. Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Israel did not have a homeland until 1948. 1,900 years of wandering and abandonment, and they maintained an ethnic identity as a whole. That's, I mean, to me, that's a God thing. Uh, that's a God thing. So how that actually all plays out, the prophets give hints of it, and time will tell. That's a great question. Someone else? And I know everybody's ready to go watch the Bears lose. So, so let's, uh, let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.